0: of the mission. My name is Daniel James. I'll be your host through to eight this evening, broadcasting to you once again from Radio City Docklands. I'd like to acknowledge the land from which I'm broadcasting from, and that is the land of the Wurundjeri people, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. Now, on tonight's show, I'll be uh, yarning with uh, Jenny Sams, the former CEO of Aboriginal Housing Victoria, on the recent announcement By the Victorian Government to upgrade and build more social housing for uh, Aboriginal Victorians, and in the second half of the show, I'll talk with Dr. Andrew Peters, Senior Lecturer in Indigenous Studies at Swinburne, about reconciliation and Sorry Day. So stick around; should be a good show. Now today is indeed Sorry Day, a day instigated by the first anniversary of the Bringing Them Home report back in 1998. This was the uh, name given to the final report from the National Inquiry into the separation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children from their families conducted by the Human Rights and Equal Opportunity Commission, now called the Australian Human Rights Commission. The uh, two-year inquiry came at a time when the then Prime Minister, John Howard, had well and truly ignited the culture wars. There was rightly a great deal of emotion and outrage at the truce that the inquiry uncovered. The systematic separation of Aboriginal children from their mothers, their families, the government policies at state and federal levels designed to breed out the Aboriginal race, to infect, eradicate the First Nations people of this country. Um, it, it has a long and sorry history, and Victoria was, and well, I'm glad to say, is much better than it was. But there was there was a the half caste act here in Victoria that was written in the late 19th century and then bolstered. Back in the uh, early 20th century, that was primary. role was just to blatantly separate half castes from full-bloods, and then hopefully those half castes would go on to breed with non-Aboriginal people or other half castes and then the Aboriginal people of Victoria would gradually be bred out and no longer an issue. So the the the, the inquiry came at a time when when John Howe was in him, in many ways at his peak. And the inquiry began a movement to get the government through the Prime Minister to say sorry to members of the Stolen Generation for past government practices that inflicted so much pain on so many. It's estimated that between 100,000 and 300,000 people are actually members of the Stolen Generation. And of course, Howard steadfastly refused to apologise. And until he was turfed out of office in 2007, it was that refusal to apologise which actually helped draw... The the culture war's battle lines, the line in which true history clashed with the 1950s childhood utopia that Howard and others wanted to take us back to. This delineation emboldened contrarians in the commentariat. It built careers, further further radicalised tabloid press and changed the face of politics perhaps forever. And I, of course, cite One Nation there as a classic example of that. And as we know, for the last 20 years or so, those culture wars have festered to a point where it's unlikely an inquiry into the separation of Aboriginal children from their families would even occur in the current climate. We've seen how the Human Rights Commission has been under constant attack, for, namely for its uh, defense of refugees in you know, the, the camps that we have set up, or prisons that we have set up for them. The Commission today, if it was set up to have a look into the separation of Aboriginal children from their families, would be described as woke, virtue signalling, political correctness gone mad. You can just see it. And it's actually a very sad state of affairs and it's something that we should, on this sorry day, actually pause to reflect. But here on the mission, we give members of the Stolen Generations, a number of whom we've already had on the show, our love and respect their strength and resilience has been a guiding light for us in the Aboriginal community and provided a much needed chapter to the to the Australian story by simply telling the truth no matter how painful no matter how hurtful the response we thank you
1: independently yours triple r
0: 102.7 now if you were listening last week You would have caught the discussion I had with Kellyanne Andy, the CEO of Elizabeth Morgan House, Aboriginal Women's Services. Um, In that discussion, Kellyanne decried the amount of social housing available to Aboriginal women fleeing domestic violence. That's just one example. Well, last week, the Victorian government announced it would undertake a long overdue spend on social housing, the biggest since the global financial crisis as part of a $500 million package to build 168 new units and upgrade more than 23,000 more to bolster Victoria's struggling economy under this pandemic. So what does that mean for the over 4,000 Aboriginal families on social housing wait lists and those that are already housed within the public housing sector? Well, someone that knows the sector intimately is Jenny Sams. Jenny Sams was previously the CEO of Aboriginal Housing Housing Victoria, leading the organisation to achieve uh, housing association status and successfully negotiating the historic transfer of ownership of nearly 1,500 DHHS, Department of Human Services and Health, properties to the Aboriginal Housing Victoria. Um, Jenny is now a non-executive director of a number of boards and undertakes consultancy work, mainly in the non-for-profit sector, and she's also an adjunct with the School of Political and Social Inquiry at Monash University. Uh, Jenny, welcome to the mission.
1: Thank you very much, Daniel. Lovely to talk to you.
0: Yeah, good to talk to you again too. Now, first of all, how are you and your friends and family holding up in the pandemic, even though we're um, easing up on restrictions? Uh, How are you holding up?
1: Uh, pretty good. I had a, um, my first granddaughter. I've got two grandsons. My first granddaughter was born last week. So I'm um, voluntarily remaining relatively isolated. So I feel comfortable spending time with her. And she's been born with the blackest eyes, imaginable, beautiful little baby with really dark eyes.
0: So it's lovely. That's so great. that's what's, what I'm doing. I'm holding up all right. What's what's her name? Sorry? What's her name?
1: Uh, her name's Charlotte.
0: Ah. Charlotte? No. That's a nice name. Yeah. OK, now, to, to matters at hands, um, what what does the $500 million social housing package mean for Aboriginal people, either already in social housing or waiting on social housing waiting lists?
1: Uh, can I just give a quick little retra- uh, background? Yep. Um, after Aboriginal Housing Victoria got the um, transfer of um, properties and all the rest of it, and I think you might have spoken to Darren Smith previously. We put together um, with the sector, the Aboriginal Housing and Homelessness Framework. And there was once We know that there's a really um, big problem with housing for Aboriginal people. One thing we weren't crystal clear on is the rate of um, homelessness amongst Aboriginal people in Victoria. 17% of Victoria's Aboriginal people have sought assistance from a homelessness service. That's just shocking. 17%. It's the highest rate in the country, higher than uh, WA, Northern Territory, and all the rest. And that's not what um, Victorians think about with our population. You know, they think, oh, it's urban and it's wealthy. Well, it's not. And I think sorry goes a good day to remember the impact of intergenerational trauma and how it plays out and the disadvantage that um, accompanies it. If you um, translated that 17% into a rate of homelessness for the general population, that would be equivalent to 1 million homeless people in Victoria. So no-one would stand for that. So um, we're pretty pleased. What the Victorian government's agreed to do in this $500 million is quarantine $35 million for Aboriginal organisations. So it's about 7%. Nowhere meets... Um, the shortfall, but nevertheless, it's a very good start. And in a recognition of uh, self-determination, has asked Aboriginal Housing Victoria to work with the Aboriginal organisations to put up a package um, into the fund. Now, is it going to meet the needs of people on the waiting list? Not really at this point, because the money is for cyclical maintenance, upgrades, structural repairs disability modifications, um, plus um, modular units. So there's a little bit of room for development there. There We believe there'll be further stimulus packages. What it does mean, though, is we can maintain and improve the quality of the stock. Um, You can do extensions. So that means families that have grown out of their house or what we see so much of, as you're well aware, is Uh, grandparents and kin taking in children uh, from other families or their kids, whatever, Uh, there'll be room to extend houses to accommodate that or just accommodate broader extended families. It happens so much. Uh, We will be able to put... uh, modular units in the backyard of houses. So, again, if you take in extra kids or your teenagers are causing you trouble and they need to be a little bit distant from the immediate (laughs) household, there'll be capacity there. there. And the other one we're keen to explore within budget is um, where there might be some vacant land and putting some modular units on that land, which might be respite, it might be ongoing living. So there's options there. I think the other one is uh, where there are, is uh, run-down Aboriginal-owned housing or hostel yeah. stock, as it can be recommissioned, so to speak, uh, there's an opportunity there as well. So it's all good in that respect. But is it a massive increase in um, the number of houses? No, it won't be.
0: I mean, it's the first big spend since, uh, like I said, the global financial crisis. And, you know, it's well well known now that there is a, a massive uh, waiting list in Victoria, um, just generally across the population mm-hmm. for, for social, social housing. Um, in relation to the, the housing that already exists, the stock that already exists for Aboriginal people, um, the, how urgent is the repair and restoration of um, some of the dilapidated properties that that are, are around at the moment, this this package will go some way to helping helping that issue? And, and what's the scale of that problem?
1: Uh, well, we're collecting information from um, the Aboriginal co-ops and other organisations on the scale of the problem. We've got a bit of an idea, but we haven't finally quantified it. Um, there are some uh, uh, buildings that are potentially good accommodation that are not in use because they're uh, to run down. So that, is, that will be a great step forward if we can bring some of them back online. Uh, one of the things, all social housing uh, gets hard used, if you know what I mean. But yeah. if you think about Aboriginal households, we have the one and two person households down one end, but we also have the very large family. And if you've got 10 kids, the number of times your front door's opened and shut is 10, probably more than 10 times, um, you know, a one person household. Things wear out far, far quicker. The life of a property is far shorter. It doesn't mean people are wrecking the house, it just means more people are in there. So to be able to maintain the houses in that respect is a wonderful opportunity. To be able to extend houses to increase the capacity, the number of people that can live in a house, is a wonderful opportunity. What we'll be doing as we work through with the Aboriginal organisations, and the number are already um, notionally signed up. We hope they all will, or those that want to, you know, upgrade and all the rest of it. Um, we'll be working through and looking at uh, what the spend can be and what benefits will derive from it. So, that'll be a very important part of how we look at it and prioritise
0: it. So, maybe if you could just give a, a snapshot of how Aboriginal housing looks in Victoria. So, there's Aboriginal housing in Victoria, but there are a number of organisations spread across the state that also um, uh, take care of housing and, and organise housing for, for Aboriginal people. Do you want to just give us a snapshot of that so that people know what we're talking about here? Yes.
1: Okay, Aboriginal Housing Victoria's got 1,500 properties and about 4,000 tenants or residents in those properties. Um, Of the Aboriginal cooperatives, all up, there's about 300, maybe 350 houses across the cooperatives spread across the state. There's other um, organisations such as the Aborigines Advancement League, which is known to many people, which isn't a cooperative, and people don't think of it as a housing provider, but, for instance, runs the Gladys Nichols Hostel, for instance. Yep. So that provides very... Um, important short to medium-term accommodation. Vaxel has the uh, Williams Hostel. Again, you know, it provides a particular form of accommodation that's important. There's uh, over 2,000 people in government-owned public housing, uh, and that's because government-owned public housing has grown that more and more Aboriginal people now have have to or want to go into that form of housing. There's also the mainstream community housing sector which really hasn't increased the number of Aboriginal people in their houses, but we're hoping we can work with them in terms of um developing up their cultural safety and getting more um, households available for Aboriginal people there. So that's that's what the picture looks like yeah, right. overall. So we'll be working Aboriginal housing Victoria, the biggest in fact the biggest um, Aboriginal housing organisation in the country with the Aboriginal co-ops and other organisations such as um, Vaxel, for instance, to get these properties back in order, back so that people can live in them, and um, also, if you know, where appropriate, uh, extend, upgrade and extend. So it will leverage um, greater um, accommodation for people, uh, but more so it will...
0: Improves the living conditions. You, you, you said earlier that uh, you were confident that there would be further a stimulus along these lines. I think um, uh, you know, leading into the next election, perhaps I think that you know we have all the major big projects like the the, the tunnels and the and the rail and the and the level crossings. Mm. Um, but there's been a massive, if I can put it this way, you know, underinvestment on on, on social housing. Are, are you confident that it's going to be a, a part of you know, either party's, you know, policy platform leading into the next election?
1: Well, as you probably know, Victoria hasn't got a
0: great record in funding social
1: housing. We do the worst in the country, which is, you know, arguably part of the reason why our homelessness rates have for Aboriginal people are so dreadfully bad. So we've got a massive catch-up. But we've been told that there'll be another round and, and that will be based on new builds and and that won't be too far off. I mean, the reason that this is funding, the sort of things it is funding, is because they want a rapid rapid response that will stimulate the economy. That's why they've focused on, you know, you can get these things going. When you're building a new house, you've got to get through planning and so it goes on and on and on. It takes longer. So that's the argument around it and we accept that because this is going to improve things. Better quality houses, bigger houses in some cases and a bit of development around modular units. That's all good. It's going to increase things. A next phase of additional actual new houses um, is going to be the thing that really makes a big difference, hopefully.
0: Yeah, this is just... um,
1: You know the other thing we can do with this?
0: You're going, go on.
1: The other opportunity coming from all of this, of course, is Aboriginal employment. Yeah. So the opportunity, hopefully, to employ Aboriginal contractors, apprentices and so on.
0: Yeah, are you, um, you know, is there is there any sort of arrangement with Supply Nation, which is, um, you know, a, a, a service or an organisation that actually, um, you know, promotes and um, administers services provided by Aboriginal people, whether it be, you know, chefs, um, uh, trades, um, uh, promotional services is there is an opportunity to work with them to get some some you know aboriginal people involved in the in the rebuilding and furnishing of these properties
1: oh absolutely we'll be looking down all of those avenues the other opportunity with it all is because what we're envisaging and we haven't formed this up yet is that we'll have a overarching consultant who will um ensure that you know um the the new upgrades are planned, there's a scope of works, um, people know how to uh, monitor and ensure that there's delivery. So that work in itself increases the skills level within the organisations too. So, you know, there's a whole lot of spin-off benefits. And one of the real things we want to do, we don't want just Aboriginal Housing Victoria to be the only provider, that's not how you do things, you know. We, We want an Aboriginal housing sector. And if we can build that sort of skills and capability, it's a great future. And you're not only reliant on government, there's other avenues too of getting um, houses up and going. So the ability to impart the skills all the way down the line, I think is something that you often forget about, but is really, really critical in all of
0: this. Yeah, I think it's... um, People often forget about the the economic development sort of opportunities. And I think most people Mm. don't see social housing as an investment, but it's absolutely an investment, isn't it? I mean, it just stimulates, and this is why the government has done it, um, stimulates a, a huge part of the economy and, and, you know, can potentially solve a whole bunch of social issues confronting segments of the community.
1: Uh, we always say, and I think you'd probably be on board with this, giving your background, um, housing doesn't break the cycle of disadvantage, cultural strength, education and training, they break the cycle, but you can't even get to square one if you haven't got stable housing. You've got to yeah. have a house to go to school. You've got to ha- have a house to build a strong, good family. You know, all of those things rely on the stability of a hut ha- well, more than a house, a home. So that's where we come from with it all. It's just critical. It's absolutely critical. So housing's an economic investment, but it's
0: a really important social investment. <sighs> I'm on board with that, Jenny. Um, um, Before I let you go, Jenny, you were instrumental in uh, negotiating the transfer of properties from the government through the Department of Health and Human Services to Aboriginal Housing Victoria. Why why was that an important move?
1: Uh, There were were a number of reasons. Absolutely symbolic and self-determination. We were the first Aboriginal housing organisation to achieve housing association status or Tier 1 status in the country, not just Victoria. Um, and we were... I'm going to speak out of turn probably, but, you know, <laughs> we, the government imposed on us a very a very high bar. They did not need to do that to transfer the houses over, but they did. And I thought, oh, you're just trying to make this too difficult for us. You don't think we can do it. So Darren and I just thought, well, we are going to. So, you know, we proved we could get that level of accreditation. Um, There's a symbolic act of transferring um, ownership of housing to an Aboriginal organisation, especially in a state where native title hasn't yielded too much because of Mm. the history. So that was really important. But there was another very, very basic reason that's often not talked about. The way the state government was um, leasing... DHS properties to community housing providers uh, was actually not very economical. So for us to have to take on the maintenance of those houses without owning them became almost economic. economically was going to break us.
0: Yeah, right.
1: Once we owned them, we were able to look and say, well, this house is worth upgrading. This house isn't. It's on a big block of land. It's reached its useful life. It's far better for us to redevelop that land and have two or three units with a decent backyard on it. So to be able to do that makes a massive difference. You're not stuck with this stock that's had its day and isn't pleasant to live in anymore. Now, of course, you can't fix all that overnight. Of course you can't. But the process is starting. You might have even seen in the press release from the last round of funding, not the stimulus stuff, but the last round of housing funding... Actually, said Aboriginal Housing Victoria was the first organisation of all of the mainstream, the lot, to complete their
0: houses. Right. So, so we so, actually can do this, you know. So, amongst amongst other things, what it actually did is, is actually positioned you, along with um, the framework you mentioned earlier on, to actually really take advantage mm. of this stimulus funding to, to, to get the, yeah. the, the, the rubber on the road and, and actually get some outcomes here.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And um, Richard Wynne, Minister for Housing, and Gavin Jennings, then Minister for Aboriginal Affairs, could absolutely see the potential of all of this. And at the launch of it, you know, they they, they really talked about how important it was. So no one expected this. A few months later, no one. But you know, <laughs> a crisis comes along. There's an opportunity, and lo and behold, we're well placed. And we've been working with the sector closely. But well, we had this sort of uh, force, you know.
0: Well, Aboriginal Housing Victoria has got a truckload of work <laughs> ahead of it to, <laughs> to 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 make this happen. But I know you, I know, I know that Darren um, and the team, and with um, your input, are, are totally up for it. So, you know, um, well done. It's um, <laughs> there's a lot more to Thanks. do. The government needs to come to the to, to the table again and and you know fund further social housing as well. But um, you know I think we can remain confident that um, Aboriginal housing Victoria has got the baton and it's not going to drop it.
1: Thank you so much, and no, uh, we're up for the challenge.
0: <laughs> Good on you. <laughs> really Any lovely stamps? to talk to you, Daniel. Great to Thanks. speak to you again. Cheers.
1: <laughs> bye bye. Thank you. Ah, bye
2: bye. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at
0: rrr.org.au. Now, like I mentioned at the top of the show, today is Sorry Day, today where we reflect and think about the Stolen Generations, for the pain inflicted on them by this country. But um, as you probably already know as well, tomorrow marks the start of Reconciliation Week, a week bookended by two very significant dates in Australian history. The, tomorrow actually marks the anniversary of the 1967 referendum in which Australians voted overwhelmingly to amend the constitution to allow the Commonwealth to make laws for Aboriginal people and include them in the census, include us in the census. Thanks very much. And at the other end, the 3rd of June, um, marks the date in which the High Court of Australia uh, actually ruled that people were here before colonial settlement, believe it or not. Um, And it put to bed bed uh, forever the uh, the lie that was terra nullius, the myth that what is now known as Australia was uninhabited before colonisation. So I thought it would be good to speak to an actual expert on these matters and so much more. And so we've got uh, Dr Andrew Peters, who is a senior lecturer in Indigenous Studies and Tourism um, at uh, Swinburne University. He's a proud Wurundjeri and Yorta Yorta man. Last year he was presented a Lifetime Achievement Award at Swinburne's 2019 Vice-Chancellor Awards. Andrew is passionate about teaching and strengthening awareness and understanding of Indigenous culture and history and acknowledging and valuing contemporary culture. And Andrew was on the line now. Andrew, welcome to the mission.
2: Thank you very much, Daniel. Thanks
0: for having me. No sweat whatsoever. First of all, um, how are you and your friends and family holding up under the the current pandemic
2: yeah, it's it's okay. Um, I've gotten really used to not driving into work and not having to battle traffic, which I'm finding really good. I'm quite enjoying <laughs> that. Uh, it's a bit crazy, isn't it? It's just not the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's not the same not seeing people. So I've struggled a little with that, uh, and I'm actually quite surprised at how busy I've been. I think everyone's struggling with um, with learning, you know, COVID, and we're teaching all our lessons are online. So I think a lot of students have going to make that adjustment, but um, generally it's been good. I've got a 12- and a 9-year-old boy at home. The 12-year-old's in year seven. He's done all right. I think he's, um, his online learning's been a bit more interactive with some of his friends. A 9-year-old who's in grade four has struggled a little more because he hasn't been able to see his friends as much. But, yeah, generally speaking, I'm pleasantly surprised at how well we're getting along still.
0: Oh, that's fantastic! That I mean, way? I mean, year nine in particular is a very challenging year in in perfect circumstances. But during it during a pandemic, I would imagine it would be um, even more trying. So, um, good on him and good on you for um for for doing well. Um, you probably will never want to see or hear of Zoom again after this uh, crisis is over. I'm guessing. Well, I don't mind Zoom actually. I, was, we used it a bit before all this, so I was kind of a, a little
2: aware of how it worked, but. Um, Mm. It's been quite good, particularly early on in uh, catching up with some friends. Controversial. Was, uh, but um, Controversial. Yeah,
0: I don't, I don't mind, as I said. Um, <laughs> A little, yeah. <laughs> now, we, we, you know, the, the the broad population hears a lot about Reconciliation Week. Um, and it's often a, a time where organisations, when they're actually physically representing themselves within buildings, you know, organise morning teas and um, afternoon teas and the like, But um, when we cut back and strip all that back, why is Reconciliation Week um, important?
2: Well, quite simply, we're we're in a society that's come from a a, sort of a a fair way back in terms of understanding and certainly appreciating our Indigenous culture in this country. A number of other countries
0: are...
2: Excuse me. A number of other countries are sort of ahead of us in some respects, but, um, you know, like all others, we've got our issues. But for Australians, we, we generally don't know enough about their history to, I think, appreciate it to the level that we should. And I think Reconciliation Week provides us all with a chance to be able to do that. Um, in my classroom, I'd, I'd like the students to understand the value of connection, because it's an important part of Indigenous culture, and certainly for Aboriginal people in Australia, it's an important part of who we are And I like the students to understand that concept and try to embrace it and work out ways that they can connect with the material that we're doing and and how they connect with it and what that story means for them. And so for me, reconciliation work is a really good chance for all Australians to do that for themselves, to learn about this journey of Aboriginal people and culture in Australia, but also learn how they can fit and connect with it. And I think that allows non-Aboriginal Australians to understand why it's important. You know, it's a part of who we are that come from the land we all live on. So essentially it's part of all of us in terms of our home. You know, we all live here. So I think Reconciliation Week allows Australians different ways to engage with our culture and our history and find ways for them to connect with it themselves and, you know, see how it might be able to help them in, in their daily lives.
0: Yeah, I, saw, I, like I, I saw a quote um, earlier today, actually, and I don't know how recent it was, but I thought it was quite a... Quite a good quote from um, from Gary Foley, of course. You know, one of the staunchest advocates in the, the history of of our movement. And you know, the quote went along the lines. I can't remember it verbatim, but it was, you know, don't go out to Aboriginal communities and try and learn and impact change there. Stay within your own community and try and learn and impact change there. I think that's a really sort of poignant message: is that people can. You know find out about reconciliation learn about Aboriginal culture and then stay within you know their own communities and impact the conversations that they have with with people both within their family within their you know with their friends in the organizations that they work in you know I thought that was a, a you know a, a, an understated but, but but powerful statement at the same time yeah very much so look I,
2: and I met Gary when I was an undergrad student many years ago and, um, you know, I was well aware of of his reputation, who he was, and um, we wouldn't have things like Reconciliation Week without people like him. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I always sit up and take notice when, when, when he speaks. But it's exactly true. Part of the, the reason I think that we lack uh, the level of understanding in Australia as a society of, of our Aboriginal culture and history is that we have always been focused on the remote aspects, the historical aspects, you know, the, using bare quotes here, traditional aspects that belong in Central Australia and Uluru, mm. but it's all around us, you know. I tell my students, every day they come into university, they're passing Aboriginal culture, they're seeing Aboriginal culture, they're breathing it, the landscape is who we are. Um, and so I think that's a great way of, of Australians to look at it, that, you know, the lives that they lived in exist in an Aboriginal environment as well. So you don't need to travel to Central Australia to, to be engaged with it and learn about it. And it's been thriving, as we all have, for many, many thousands of years. And our ancestors would be proud of what we do in the urban parts of the country. And hopefully
0: we can take other Australians along for the ride with us. Yeah, I think most people don't actually realise that the uh, the Aboriginal population in Australia is, is you know... Predominantly an urban urban population, you know, um, you know, Melbourne, south south um, east Queensland, and of course the suburbs of Sydney, originally around Redfern, but it's spread out further from 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 there. And so, you, yeah, you're absolutely right. You don't have to, and you can't at the moment anyway, <laughs> uh, travel to the Northern Territory and and engage <laughs> with communities there. There are communities, thriving communities, right across Victoria, in particular, one of the areas of the of this nation that was most you know, impacted by uh, invasion colonisation. So, um, you know, you can impact change, uh, you know, within your own scope. Um, now, if we could just reflect on um, today's Sorry Day, what impact did the Bringing Them Home report have on the psyche of this country when it was released way back in
2: 97? Well, at the time, I think the, the initial one was shock, Daniel. I, I think mm. most Australians were, you know, reflective of, of um, Henry Reynolds' book from from the 80s as well. You know, why weren't we told? Why didn't we know this? How could this happen? You know, and again, for me, it's one of the greatest symbols of that notion of shock was our Prime Minister saying before all this, well, and as it happened, you know, John Howard was saying this didn't happen in the Australia I grew up in because that was the mindset of most Australians that surely we wouldn't have done this. We wouldn't have done this at all. This is not Australia. And it's correct that it's not the Australia that we know now, but it also is equally correct that it did happen here. So that disconnect is what I think stops a lot of Australians from engaging in our culture and, and recognising and understanding the value of our culture today. Um, but the, yeah, the Bring Him Home the report was just... It was you know it was almost like uh, the Equal Opportunity Commission slapping Australians in the face with the hardcover edition of it. Do that you was
0: think something that you just can't believe? Sorry, right, uh, it's okay. Um, do, do you think that in the in the current political environment, and you know, given that the culture wars have been you know raging ever since um, Howard was prime minister, really, do you think it would even be possible to get such a report up in the in the current political and social media and you know mainstream media environment? Oh, I certainly think you could. Um, the the challenge we
2: have now and particularly with social media is the rhetoric around and particularly this notion of fake news uh, mm-hmm. that you know people generate rep- opinions and reports and, and articles and, and columns written about things that convey a certain point of view with no real um, background to it, no real research done and it's absorbed and, and accepted by so many people because of the immediacy of social media that people read something and because a friend has said it or because it's from someone that they've seen on the news that, well, this must be true. And, and so that negates a lot of the impact of, of these things. Um, so I, I certainly think that it would have would have a similar impact today. It, it might be different in that I think Australians 20 years on a, or 23 years on are a little more educated now
0: about these things. Um, but certainly... Stemming, you know, stemming from that report, really, the power. Yeah, I think- I think, I think that report itself actually generated a discussion around Aboriginal issues more, more broadly. Um, and I think that, you know, I think we're still benefiting from that from that today.
2: Oh, definitely. You know, and, and going back a little further, the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths and Custody opened the door to mistreatment of Aboriginal people simply based on race. And then, um, you know, we had the Bringing Them Home report. Uh, the Prime Minister, or Kevin Rudd's apology, that came finally came in 2008 look these are absolutely significant moments in Australian history let alone Aboriginal history and if we look back at them they've changed the way that we look at our country and for the better I think even though they're really negative things they've opened our eyes a little more to who we are as a society and so you know there's certainly
0: absolutely significant moments in our history I am speaking with Dr Andrew Peters from Swinburne University about Reconciliation Week and a whole bunch of other matters. Um, have you got any plans, even if in lockdown, for um, for the upcoming week? Andrew?
2: A lot of uh, online events, Daniel. Yeah, so, yeah, um, a couple local government ones that I'm sort of involved in, but most of them, yeah, Zoom things and... Um, Little tough for me. This is the first one. My mum, who was a, a well respected local elder, passed away last September. So, I'm oh, very was sorry that. About- it be first reconciliation. Yeah, thanks, thanks, brother. It's um, the first one without her, but she was very much about reconciliation. So, you know, this is essentially her week in a way, in that she was always about bringing Aboriginal and non Aboriginal people together. So, For me, it's it's much more a a week of, I think, celebration and promotion and and trying to bring people together um, than than it is for a lot of, you know, other Aboriginal brothers and sisters who who see the day differently and I completely understand and respect that. But, yeah, as I say, for me, it's a a matter of getting people together and I'm involved in a few, as I said, a few online events with local governments, discussions and things, and, and as I say, just trying to get more and more people to to engage in the week and to learn about our culture and history and to embrace it for themselves.
0: Well, you know, when whenever, you know, um, you, you tragically lose a, lose a beloved, you know, parent, um, you know, you, you actually end up seeing the world through a, through a totally new, new lens. And, you know, you can sometimes feel alone and, um, uh, you know, detached from things. So, you know, hopefully, Andrew, you know, things like Reconciliation Week, you know, help sort of really sort of vividly rekindle the memory of your mum. And that gives you time to to reflect on, on her memory and um, where you now fit within the world. So, um, you know, my thoughts are with you. Yeah, thank you, mate. Thank you. And exactly. Yeah, that's, that's what she'd want to, yeah. Look, um, unfortunately, we've uh, run out of time, but I'd love to get you back. There's so many things we could talk about. Um, I'll get you back on, you know, sometime in the not-too-distant future to um, have a yarn about all sorts of things. You've been um, at your uh, caper and doing it very well for a very long time, so um, what you don't know is probably not worth knowing. So, <laughs> um, Andrew, thank you so much well, for I love time. that. <laughs> <laughs> really no, any Daniel. Thanks very much for having me, mate. No worries. Thank Take you. care. Thank you. Well, that's basically it for uh, another episode of the mission. I'm going to be taking the next few weeks off. Uh, I believe Declan will be taking over for the next couple of weeks. I don't know about after that. Um, there's a chance that you might hear me at some point on Triple R very early in the morning, but uh, that's all I can say at this stage. Um, thank you once again for for tuning in. Um, look after yourself. Make yourself available to learn about Aboriginal culture during a Reconciliation Week. And um, I will speak to you in a few weeks. Until then, ta da. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.